Hello and welcome back to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Uh, this is Nick again today, I'm the, the only one discussing this topic, so unfortunately you're left with my voice uh, and, and my research, I guess you could say. We're continuing our series on genocide and kind of why it happens, the, the foundations of it, and you know what, what to really think about it. And last episode we discussed the, the four conditions of genocide, kind of why it happens, maybe why also it fascinates us as humans to to read about it and study it. I wanted to do in this episode today more how you get average people to do this stuff because, you know, we talked about Sheryl McCulley and why not kill them all, how they talk about that this is kind of normal behavior for humans, that under the right circumstances, humans are willing to, as they say, quote-unquote, kill by category. But they also discuss that there are certain limitations placed on humans that that's prevent this kind of thing from happening. For every one example you can go find of mass killing and genocide, you can probably find another example where mass genocide, uh, mass killing and genocide could happen, but it didn't. And there's a few reasons why this isn't you know, more common than it is. Um, there's codes of honor. We have international law after World War II about this kind of thing. We have certain um, kind of restrictions placed in laws and governments in different various countries. Economic relationships is another example, you are less likely to commit mass killing and genocide if you have a positive economic relationship with another country. If, if, it's, if it's benefiting both groups, um, sometimes you can avoid mass killing and you can draw cultural connections. That idea of cultural diffusion sometimes, in a positive way, can prevent mass killing and genocide. But for the same reason, though, you for those same reasons, you could also get to genocide if that economic relationship turns sour if um, the code of honor is gone, if that international law is gone, if the law within your own country is gone. But we ended last episode talking about ideology and the um, ideology being a dangerous component of mass killing and genocide and getting people to commit these things. And the authors offer up in the 20th century in particular that some ideologies are far more prone to committing genocide than others. And that is one of the bigger reasons why this is not um, more common than it, you know, it's hard, it's hard way to, to kind of talk through that because here in one sense they're arguing, and I agree, that mass killing and genocide is common, but that it doesn't happen more often than it does. And they offer this up in an excellent quote from their in their book. Uh, it's kind of another long one, sorry, but I think they do a much better job of explaining it than I certainly can. So why genocide and mass killing doesn't happen more often than it already does. And uh, they say third, and this is the beginning of the quote, Third and most important today is ideology. So they're speaking about the 20th century. Back to them. Some ideologies are highly conducive to genocide and others are not. Moral codes are ideological and some codes are more conducive to violence than others. So they, they then go on to talk about like in certain biblical times uh, that moral code, the religious code, can be certainly, you know, lead to more genocide and mass killing because you have that core belief there. And then they kind of move on back to the 20th century because, let's face it, that's what we're really, you know, more shocking. Because, like I said in the first episode, you could sort of write off that older killing to, oh, it's a more violent world. Um, it's the 20th century ones that we think we've moved past that, but with the right conditions, we really haven't. So back to Cheryl McCulley here, quote, Anti-individualistic, strong communitarian ideologies, when combined with utopian certitude and an exalted sense of mission, led to the worst genocidal conflicts of the 20th century. Such ideologies could again support genocide in the future. 
If ruling ideologues believe that it is possible to purify their world and achieve perfection by force, and that it is necessary to rid themselves of all real and potential enemies, mass murder is only one crisis away. And that's the end of their their passage there. That one is so profound to me because if you think about the last episode and those conditions of genocide, that quote really wrapped it all up in, in one. If you think about the Soviet Union, if you think about Nazi Germany, Mao um, Zedong in China, Pol Pot, Cambodia, if you think about those ideologies and those mass killings, they really hit the nail on the head there. Uh, the authors of Why Not Kill the Monstro and McCulley, they, they really bring home the idea that those ideologies, the threat to my ideology, the threat to like that, that perfect system that I'm trying to create, that threat of pollution, that's, that journey for purity, if anything's a threat to that, that's led to the worst genocides of the 20th century. But we still have to beg the question, though. How do average people do this to each other? How do you get, how did these, these leaders get these, the, the members of their country to commit these acts? There's a bunch of different uh, reasons that the authors offer up. And I don't want to be just, you know, picking on, I keep bringing up the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, Mao China, you know, things like that. I keep bringing those examples up, but I also want to, you know, I talked about Native Americans in the United States earlier on um, in the in the first episode. We talked about uh, the the Europe in the 16th century, the the Protestant religious wars. You know, there's examples of genocide everywhere, but the 20th century, I think, definitely goes more the ideological route rather than the the religious one or convenience route of the United States. So there are plenty of examples. I don't want to just be picking on the same ones, but their their work definitely centers a lot of it around the 20th century. So that's why I think I keep going to those examples because they're maybe the, the easiest to to talk about and the most widely known. So I, that's kind of why I've been gravitating there towards that. But how do average people do this to each other? People, you know, when we talk about Nazi Germany in, in class, a lot of times the students are always profound. Like, how, how do you get average people to go along with this, to look the other way? And the last portion is, how do you get them to take part in it? How do you get them to become willing executioners? Because at the end of the day, the people committing these crimes, you know, a lot of them have families. They're, 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 they're fathers, right, um, committing these mass killings. And, and how, do you, how do you get this to happen? So it really is shocking when you, when you think about it. These are average people doing these awful acts and not that far away in history. You know, let's think about the Holocaust. That's, you know, some of us have, have grandparents or great-grandparents, if they're still with us, that were alive during this. These are people you can, you can see, you can hear, you can listen, listen to them on, on these things. And it's not that far away in our, in our past. And here's the shocking part. Under the right circumstances, and this is uncomfortable to think about, we could all be perpetrators or victims of genocide and mass killing. And I'm going to spend a lot of time in this because it gets to the heart of the matter of how this stuff happens. We laid it out sort of from the top down in the last episode, but Cheryl McCauley offer up a few reasons as to how you get humans to do this. Um, number one, organization 
is a huge piece of mass killing. They talk about how you get a normal, not normal is the wrong word, how you get a mass killing to go into a prolonged genocide. And the first step is organization. And that organization has to play on human emotion, which legitimizes the killing. This reminds me of revenge from one of the the first four conditions of genocide. They point out that humans, we don't really like violence, the vast majority of us over extended periods of time, especially, because it reminds of us it reminds us of our own mortality. It reminds us that one day that's going to be us, that one day our life comes to an end. And you know, you think about this, if you have people who can't stand the sight of blood, right? The people that, that they can't stand watching violent films, they can't even get blood drawn at the hospital. Violent acts, we can certainly be capable of committing them, but over long periods of time, it begins to really put the strain on us. And I'll provide a few examples in just a second. But of course, there's, you know, examples where you can say, oh, what about serial killers, right? But we're talking about the average human, right? We The, the average human for prolong, prolonged mass killing, um, certainly short mass killings as in the riots and things like that, the group think that whole thing, the quick killing, yeah, humans are capable of that on a quick scale in an instant. But the prolonged mass killing, the genocide of the 20th century, you have to have some kind of organization behind that for that to continue. Um, let's look at the Nazi death squads, the Einsatzgruppen. After a while, when the, the first in the beginnings of the, the Holocaust and World War II, there's accounts of the Einsatzgruppen and these guys not being able to handle it. And that in large part is because the way that they're, they're carrying out their mission is in close quarters. They are doing this with the small arms, machine guns. They're, the gas chambers are a thing of the future and that sort of killing on that large level. And the guys just can't handle it. Himmler himself uh, has trouble when he visits some of these sites because, you know, the digging of the pits, sometimes they're just throwing these bodies in these pits and the, and the guys can't take it. And over this prolonged period of time, they're beginning to break down. Um, some guys, the stories of guys vomiting, losing their nerve, refusing to do it. Some alcohol is common. Uh, alcohol is one of the most common things that you read throughout different episodes of mass killing. They get just stark drunk to get themselves to be able to do this stuff. I remember the story of a um, Soviet woman who was in the forces. The Soviets fully integrated women into their forces, pilots, snipers, all kinds of things. And she was interrogating a member of the Einsatzgruppen, I believe, or I could not remember, but it was a German soldier under some circumstances. And she's interrogating this guy and she gets very intoxicated before and just tortures him, eventually killing him. And she didn't feel bad about it in her in her interview or her writing. Um, so alcohol and drug abuse certainly plays a role into getting people to do these mass killings. Anything to sort of dull the senses. But if you look at the uh, the, the mass killings of the 20th century, they all have organization. Um, the authors talk about how how do you get you know that that quick riot to go into prolonged mass killing? It needs organization. In, when you go to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., which the last time I was there, I believe it was a 10th grader, and you look at the sheer scale of records that the Germans kept, how organized they were. You know, I talked in the last episode about how they would divert resources away from the war effort to continue you know, the final solution, to continue this, this quest to get rid of the pollution that you know, they saw as the, the Jewish threat in other groups. Another example of the organization you see is the training that these people go through, the desensit, uh, dehumanization through things like propaganda, through news, through media, um, different outlets. The Nazis were experts at this. The Soviets were very good as well. And to dehumanize that enemy. 
And then we kind of go back to those four conditions of genocide. This organization to get people to do these awful things has to play on a few human emotions. And when you go back to the, the, the four conditions of genocide, things like a sense of justice, a sense of fairness, a sense of fear, anger, those all play a role in getting people to do this. You'll see these, like I said, the, the authors call them frenzy-like killings throughout history quite often. They're very deadly because you get those emotions that, that come into play. And uh, one of the thoughts of this is uh, the burning of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma in the 20s. Um, it was one of the, the wealthiest communities of African Americans in the entire country. And over 300 people died. Uh, 10,000 people were left homeless. You know, large numbers of Americans went and destroyed this African American community in this frenzy-like emotions, and it's one of these these things in our history that very few people actually know about. But the but that took place over a short time. Eventually, those emotions wear off. If you bring organization into this to play on those emotions, whether it be propaganda through dehumanization of the other, the fear of pollution, you play on those emotions of the human mind. But you have the consistent organization to have it go forward. So when you look back at the Einstein's group in early days, they begin to to realize we can't continue this sort of killing in these close quarters. So that's when you get things like, you know, the gas chambers, you know, various other ways, the, the crematoriums in, in these camps because the people can't take it. So these 20th century mass killings, which I know we've been focusing a lot in these genocides, the the large reason that these can happen is because these these organizations, I should say, uh, governments had these organizations to overcome these barriers to get humans to do this. So there's a lot of human barrier to do this. Like I said at the beginning, you know, we have an aversion to blood. We have an aversion to violence. So these governments and these systems and these leaders had to figure out ways to overcome those natural you know, human reaction. Some of the ways I did this, like I said, were, you know, fair, fearness, um, propaganda, that sense of justice, play on that anger, play on those feelings and emotions, but you have to do it in a way that you can extend it over a long period of time. And when you do this, the killing becomes over time, less and less personal. It's normalized. It's brutalized. It's part of an order you are given. It's expected of you and in cases, certain cases, even rewarded with rank or, or what have you. Studies are shown that humans, you know, have a far more likely chance to commit awful acts if they're given an order. If an authority figure gives you that order, you're much more likely to commit an awful atrocity. One example of this is the Milgram experiment at Yale. They found out that, you know, the authors talk about this in their book, Macaulay and Chirot, they talk about how people were really likely to commit these brutal, awful, you know, they had a, basically a button on, on one side. They would ask people questions. If they answered wrong, uh, they would deliver a shock. And in some cases, the shock was getting up so high that it was just incredible, um, would even kill people. The, you know, the people were doing a good job of acting on their side of the wall. And uh, if given an order, humans are very likely to commit some awful thing. One need only look at the Nuremberg trials. The common defense there was I was ordered to do this. I was part of the system, and you know that defense did not work. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But you know we we are trained even when you're a kid to take you know you have to respect authority. You have to respect the wishes of you know your parents, teachers, police officers, authority figures. And if if these people that you you trust, 
in many cases that you, you sometimes look up to are, are telling you that this is okay, it's normal, um, or then you go beyond that into that fear, that pollution, that anger of they deserve it, they did this, they did that, that idea of you know public executions that the victim deserves almost what they have coming to them and it's normalized, you can kind of get through this stuff. And you need only go look at interviews of perpetrators of mass killing, when how they explain themselves. They'll often cite these things. Uh, I was ordered. It was just normal. It was something you were ordered to do. But there's another component that kind of comes into this that I often think about, and threats will also work quite well too. The idea that you, your family, um, could be harmed if you disobeyed that order is very profound. And, and at Nuremberg, you know, you, they established the idea of the Nuremberg trials after World War II to bring the Nazis to justice. That is, it's, it's established that if you have an order that is immoral and wrong in international law today, you are expected to disobey it no matter the consequence. Now, personally, I believe that, yeah, you should have that rule in place. We should have that, that high benchmark that we all try to hit as humans in modern society, and we try to live up to that. But at the end of the day, it's it's very difficult to hit that. To you know, if, if you're in that situation where it's not just your life, but the lives of your family that could be in danger if you don't follow this this order, humans have. Uh, I, I don't I don't know how I would handle that situation. I, yeah, I pray I'm never in that situation. Obviously, but that's a tough tough mark to live up to, and. You know, would it work as a defense today in, um, you know, war crimes, mass killings, genocides? Probably not. It probably wouldn't live up to that. But and it, it's still, no matter how you slice and dice it and look at it, that's, that's tough. If you are under threat of, you know, being killed if you don't carry out this act or, you know, your family, that also plays a role into it too. Because in these systems, you know, if you disobeyed that order, you, they it's not, like I said, it's not just you, it's others. And you could, you know, you, in many cases, you just disappear. Um, nobody hears from you, sees from you again, that kind of thing. So that that is a challenge. That is a challenge that I think any kind of mass killing or genocide will have that as a component along the line. But I want to come back to this idea of justice and fairness as a role in the motivation for killing for these average people, uh, governments and organizations using this as a component to get average people to commit awful acts to overcome some of those barriers we discussed. You're just more likely to harm another if you feel that person deserves it or has legitimacy, whether it's, like we said, through that order or it's that sense of justice and fairness. If you think about it, when we make a poor choice in our lives, no matter what age we are, I mentioned this in the first episode, our first reaction is to either try to excuse it uh, or justify it somehow to explain what you did. And it's just another example of simple human nature coming into play in these grand scales and gears of history and mass killing and genocide that you can see these behaviors in everyday human interaction, but how when we come to mass killing and genocide, Troma Culley discussed this as well, that these behaviors translate into these grander um, killings and genocides throughout history. And I mentioned this earlier that you can see in interviews with people down the road long after these genocides have been committed, the perpetrators anyways, the actual killers most of the time are not willing to talk about this at all. They're just not willing to discuss it. They, well, If they are willing to discuss it, what you're usually going to see is they're going to feed you back a lot of times. If they, if they haven't come to the conclusion that what they did was wrong, if they're still going to try to excuse it or dismiss it, 
that they'll they'll feed you the lines of rhetoric that were so ingrained in them at the time of the killing, the legitimacy behind it that was um, put into them, the dehumanization, all of those things. And they'll point out all the wrongs that the victim group did to their group. There's that retribalization theme again throughout history. And they'll be able to quickly point those out and constantly name it like, oh, this happened to my group. So, you know, we're going to continue to just do this. My mind always goes right to a documentary called Death in Gaza. Now, while this may be, you know, you you may not put this in the category of genocides, um, you know, right now it's still quite controversial. You know, definitely war war like a situation with mass killings, but Death in Gaza was about the Palestinian-Israeli relations. Like I said, you don't you don't this doesn't exactly fit the 20th century stuff we've been talking about with the ideological genocides. But you have conflict of religion here, which definitely could fit into someone Jerome McCall you're talking about. Not saying either of these groups are committing genocide. I don't want that to to come through this way. But certainly a piece of human emotion that I remember from this this documentary was they go into the home homes of like um, Israeli families and Palestinian families on either side, and you know perfectly normal family. You're seeing what you expect kids playing, and then uh, one of the interviews will ask the kids kind of you know, what do you think of the Israelis if it's a Palestinian family, and the answers will be like you know, they're dogs. I don't like them. And if you go into the, the Israeli homes, it's the same reaction. You know they're 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 terrorists. They're awful people. I don't understand why they're this killing. And they're perfectly okay to justify what their organizations or governments will do to the other group because of these long memories, these long pasts that invoke a sense of justice and fairness for what you're about to do to the other group. So kind of back to, you know, how these people down the road will talk about uh, their behaviors. I remember watching uh, an interview with a former member of the INSIS group, and he's an old man. And this was one of these guys who just was not, he was not willing to I don't want to I don't want to use the word apologize, but he, he hadn't come to the conclusion that what he did was wrong yet. He's an old man at this point. And he cited, you know, the lines of rhetoric from, from the Nazi line that, that there was an international Jewish conspiracy and, and that they were trying to, you know, rid the the, the Bolsheviks from Eastern Europe. And uh, we talked about those other German veterans that did the same thing in the documentary um, from the first episode. But these people will have, so if they have not come to grips that what happened was wrong or that they took part in it, they'll still excuse their behavior using that idea of justice and fairness and that it had legitimacy. You know, those long senses of history and past wrongs that what I did was okay. Uh, or, or there's the classic, you know, I had no choice, like we talked about with Nuremberg. And another barrier you have that governments have a hard time getting ordinary people to commit these atrocious acts is when it comes to women and children or weaker groups of people. It is very difficult. You know, if if you are committing a mass killing or a war crime against uh, prisoners of war, uh, military-aged males, throughout history, those those are very, very common. They happen quite a bit. And you can almost justify that a little more clearly as they're a threat. They have to be eliminated. We we can't, you know, take this risk. It's it's all business, right? That idea of convenience. But when you introduce women, children, or, or like I said, weaker groups of people into the equation, this is where the governments and organizations have the hardest time. Now, everything that's been mentioned, the ideas of justice, fairness, long historical memories, fear of pollution, those are all... Um, play into getting people to do this. But this is obviously the more difficult piece. And I want to talk about the, the U.S. case kind of here. In the Philippine-American War, 
many people don't know about a lot about this. Following the Spanish-American War, after the United States clears the the Philippine Islands of the Spanish uh, fleet and forces, there's actually an insurrection that the Filipinos uh, create, and this is because that you know the Philippine people were in large part promised their independence if they helped the Americans defeat the Spanish, led by Emilio Aguinaldo, the famous uh, Filipino leader who liked to call himself the George Washington of the Philippines. And this is one of these conflicts that Americans know very little about. It uh, happens right after the Spanish-American War, 1898-99, um, all the way into the 20th century. The Filipinos then launch a, a quest for independence from the Americans. The Americans simply determined that you know we can't risk giving these islands their independence because, number one, Another European power could swoop in and take them and have those military bases, and then where are we left with? So we have to keep it because they're probably not strong enough to fight off any kind of major defense from a European power. Most notably, the Germans um, were kind of in the area already, kind of looking at the prospect of, of getting some bases there. So that's the first reason. The second reason you have is you know, the, the kind of the, the attitude that these people are not civilized enough to govern themselves, right? They'll descend into anarchy, and then where are we left? You know, we need to help them achieve this sense of civilization. A lot of parallels to the, to the Native American days of the West uh, Wars and the Indian boarding school idea. So it was sold as, you know, we're doing this for their own good, and anything that we have to do is just like that idea of a means to an ends to civilize these people and kind of bring them into the fold of civilization and the United States. It doesn't matter if they gave their consent to be governed. It doesn't matter that they want their self-determination to determine their future of a nation. Um, we have to bring these people into the fold of civilization if, you know, by force. And what you see in the Philippines is almost like this early Vietnam War kind of situation where these Filipinos just are fighting this guerrilla-style jungle war and the Americans are having a tough time with it. And you just have these brutal acts committed on both sides. You know, Granted, the Filipinos will do some awful things to American troops and it's just violence breeds violence breeds more violence on both sides. You know, Another scenario that can be thrown into this are Native Americans within the United States, the continental United States. That, you know, we're moving them for their own good. That idea of convenience we talked about in the first episode. Uh, we're going to civilize them for their own good. So there's some parallels between that and the Philippines. And certainly on the frontier of American society, you know, people lived in, in quote-unquote, fear of Native American attacks. And Native Americans lived in fear of Americans. So you have, like, this, this idea of violence breeding more violence on the frontier. But to bring it back to the idea of women and children, in the Philippines and in the United States of Native Americans... You have constant brutalization and death of women and children um, on all sides in these mass killings. You know, but I want to focus on obviously the U.S. mass killing of indigenous peoples in the United States and in the Philippines. You know, when you have this brutalization, this constant system of violence, it's much easier, coupled with the ideas of justice, fairness that we've talked about already, to commit these awful acts against women and children. And the same kind of thought applies to the ones we've talked about with the, with, uh, the Nazis, the Soviets, all the groups we've already mentioned. But I wanted to bring it to the U.S. example. Now, uh, granted, this is on a different you know time period than the 20th century, but that doesn't make it any less more right, wrong, condemnable, what have you. But I wanted to bring it to a U.S. example because I want to stress one of the main theories of why not kill them all, which is that no people, no culture is really immune to being the perpetrator or the victim of these acts. And I've been talking so much about, you know, the Nazis, the Soviets, um, 
and other groups that I've wanted to stress in this podcast that, you know, one of the main things that they offer, we mentioned the first episode, is that no one is immune to this. This happens in every walk of human life where we can all be perpetrator or victim at any point throughout our history. No one's immune to it. So this idea that, oh, we don't, we just don't do that is just, just not factual, right? That, that no one is the exception to this rule that mass killing and organized killing of people can happen and does happen throughout history. So to kind of bring it to, um, I've talked about frenzy killings earlier, group behavior plays a role in getting people to commit these, these acts as well. We just kind of, you know, to put a, to put a bow on the idea of organization getting you to do this, organization can also play on group behavior as well. You know, you kind of see this at riots at sports games sometimes. Um, a little bit of a lighter, lighter note, lighter touch in this discussion. But group behavior plays a huge role in, in genocides and mass killings. The SS, for example, and the INSS group and in groups like that, you often can research and learn that these guys formed a tight bond of, of, of brotherhood in what they were doing and their legitimacy of it, that it seems like a justifiable act too because that guy's doing it too. It's also okay because you know he's doing it, I'm doing it. I mean, we get down to the basics. I always like to bring it back to education and your average school building. Group behavior is noticeable at all levels of human life. It seems okay and justifiable if one person can do it or another. The Rwandan genocide, I haven't talked much about this one, um, committed slaughter on a, a very wide scale over a short period of time. The Rwandan genocide is well known for having a large death toll, probably near a million plus or minus, what have you. The numbers are really hard to determine in that one. But it was a short, short, short frame of time that these killings happened over. And people have always been, you know, why? how are they able to do that? You know, how did this large number of killing over, you know, I believe it was a few months to about a year, uh, I could be wrong on that. I have to check that up a little bit here in a minute, maybe by the end of the episode, and I'll correct it if I'm wrong in the third episode. But slaughter on this large scale over a short period of time because the, you had the Interhuame, forgive me if I mispronounce that, but very close in an organization similar to your SS, your Einsatz group, in that they helped legitimize the killing of, of group behavior of average people. That when you add that backbone, Cheryl McCulley going in more in depth in this than I will, but if you legitimize that behavior with a backbone organization like the Interhamway in Rwanda, you can then take group behavior, put it on a larger scale to commit more violent acts. Um, you can get average citizens to kill their own neighbors. And you, you see this lots of times in history. You see this all the time and largely in frenzy killing. I'm going to get in some more examples that you're able to get neighbors to kill people they know, people that they understand if you can provide the organizational backbone. Um, and they called it, like I said, quick frenzy killings. And they actually use a, a term for it that I think is useful called proto-genocides. Again, bring it back to the emotions of fear, angle, anger, moral wrongs. I know we probably sound like a broken record, but these things are so powerful that I feel it's necessary to, re to remind people of. And they can motivate people to kill in very large numbers by category. Um, the proto-genocides that they offer up, they usually subside quicker because of the lack of organization. Like I said, if you look at the burning of Black Wall Street, um, other African-American atrocities in the United States, lynchings, you know, there's your group mentality right there. If you don't have the organization behind it to sustain over long periods of time, these proto-genocides, the author calls them, calls them, can kind of fade away. And I mentioned before I got into the proto-genocides about how do you get 
neighbors to kill their own neighbors. Um, besides organization, we're drawing to the end here. There's some other pieces as well. Back to Eastern Europe, uh, one of the most brutalized regions in the 20th century between the Soviet Union and Germany. Killing on large scales during turmoil and war leads people, average people, to violence. Um, the brutalization of groups of people can lead them to do some really awful things. Again, not the authors don't offer this as an excuse. It's just a reason it can happen. In Poland and the Ukraine and other territories of Eastern Europe, when the Germans come in and the SS arrives, the Einsatzgruppen, oftentimes when this happens, you'll have groups of people commit violent acts against Jewish populations without being asked by the Einsatzgruppen or the SS or other you know, groups of people. You know, a large portion of that plays on anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe that had been there for a long time. It was not exclusive to, you know, Germany during World War II. The Soviet Union and Russia before that had been known for, you know, their programs against uh, Jewish populations. So that wasn't anything new. But the fact that this region had been so brutalized by war, um, famine in the Ukraine's case, definitely put, the authors argue, put people in a situation to commit awful acts. This is an analogy that you know I, I like to think of and use for students. If you look at um, the show The Walking Dead, when you remove the barriers of quote-unquote civilization or law and order, what will people do? How will they react? And then when you add violence to that equation and less law and order for a time, how will people react? And that's kind of the analogy that I take from Chiron McCulley talking about this idea of you know, the brutalization of people will lead them to more violence. And, and you see that in human behavior quite a bit. Um, violence, again, I, I talked about it earlier in the show, can breed more violence in an individual's life, not just even on a large scale of people. So to kind of put an ending on how do you get people to commit these awful acts of violence over periods of time, because as it's been well established, humans have a natural aversion to, to killing and mass killing, especially over long periods of time. It seems to me that this equation or mix of fear, justice, um, I've been wronged and I need to commit a wrong, uh, orders from a legitimate authority, uh, a bond between people in committing those acts that provides legitimacy, you know, that inf continues to enforce that, those emotions that I just mentioned. And the final key piece of organization all leads humans into being able to commit these awful acts throughout history. And then when you add the brutalization piece, when you add the violence piece between groups of people over a long period of time, for example, like you know the frontier with Native Americans in the United States or troops serving the Philippine conflict, these kinds of behaviors uh, are going to happen um, on you know, whatever scale have you with the people involved with industrialized nations. And I want to close kind of with a brighter side of this whole thing. And I took that class in college on politics of genocide. And we read a book called, it's not a Netflix film. I encourage you to go check it out called First They Killed My Father by uh, Luong. Sorry if I mispronounced that as well. And there was a quote by her that always stuck with me about this kind of stuff. And it and she says that, I think how the world is still somehow beautiful, even when I feel no joy at being alive within it. And that 
is her reflecting on her time during the the Cambodian genocide, which is what first they killed my father was about um, in in um, Cambodia when Pol Pot took over and began his process of eliminating intellectuals. Um, you know, certainly different categories there than than ethnic groups. Anyone who is a threat to his ideological society of utopian, like going back to the agrarian ways and getting rid of intellectualism and, and you know, kind of getting rid of industrialized life and getting back to the old agrarian status of things. And, you know, intellectuals provide a pollution of that. And Luong's father was an example that he was an intellectual, I believe he was a teacher. And the story of the people that get through these things I think is, and I mentioned this the first episode, is what I've always been gravitated to. And I think, you know, maybe we are, some of us are attracted to the, the awful side of genocide. But when you find the pieces of light inside of all of this, when you find the harrowing stories of people who get through it, like Luong, um, like uh, Elie Wiesel, when you, when you find people who make it through all these things, it gives us hope, I think. I think we all want to believe that the humans, us as a species, are going to get better, that we're going to improve, that we're going to become better people than our ancestors have. You know, it's always our hope that we make the next generation better than what we had, and we always improve and we always move forward. I think when we look back and see things like this, you know, genocides and mass killings, we want to believe that we're going to be better. How we get there is a different story, and Trill and McCulley offer examples of how to you know, avoid mass killing and genocides. They offer up things like international law, which we certainly already have. Um, the the biggest one they offer is the proper education of this stuff, which is why, you know, we as a department talk about making this podcast and doing this research, possibly offering a genocide course on um, the various genocides throughout history and even more modern ones and, you know, even things like proto-genocides. You know, by proper education, Hopefully, students and humans can recognize these signs of genocide, uh, the the organizations that are trying to promote the conditions of it. You know, recognize this stuff before it happens. I think we're much better at that today than we have been in the past, but still, the dark side of it is that these things are probably going to still happen. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to get better. It doesn't mean that it's inevitable. You know, the education piece, I think, is big. And they also talk about, you know, the benefits of economic trade and globalization, hopefully leading to the decrease of this, you know, that we're trying to detribalize after the 20th century instead of continuing to retribalize in the 21st century. So hopefully that process continues. And uh, they, they leave the book off on a good note that there is hope and that uh, through proper education, through detribalization, through you know, proper trade and, and globalization, maybe maybe we can overcome and be better and avoid things like this in the future. So their work is great to understand the conditions of mass killing and how do we prevent them. And then the final piece is these events, these awful events and awful acts throughout history deserve to be remembered. They deserve our attention. They deserve our thoughts and, you know, because there are people still alive to this day that have gone through this. I mean, Rwanda was only in the 90s, you know. So, I mean, this is stuff that people have to focus on, have to understand, have to remember. Because the first step of avoiding things like this in the future is to know the past and how it fits into the human story and the human narrative. So we have come to the end of our series on genocide here in this episode. Uh, we will have a part three coming out next month, hopefully. In the part three, you are not going to be hearing just from me, hopefully. Yes, there will be other people um, involved in the, in the project, hoping to get some students um, 
from some of the classes that we've had on World Wars and, and different things into the studio with me and maybe other teachers. They've heard that we were doing an episode on genocide, and after the first episode came out, I was like, well, what about us? Can you bring us in? So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll pack my research that I was going to do into part two and part three into just part two, and then we can have kind of a sit-down um, table round discussion on genocide and you know, talk and have some back and forth and discussions about the two episodes that we just did and sort of some of their thoughts and feelings on, you know, genocide and how it should be taught, how they learned it, um, how they think it should be remembered, how to prevent it in the future, you know, which genocides they've studied the most, which ones they, they are most fascinated by. So I thank you for listening to this part two in our series on genocide. Please subscribe to the page. Uh, we're still trying to, you know, get us up in those those subscribers. We hope you enjoyed this this show, and please continue to listen. Thank you for the support.